Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. If you have questions about this faith or about this congregation, don't hesitate to ask the people at the visitor table, and they will do their best to help you out. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. So it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek to find, and to share. Our call to worship is by David C. Pohl. We come to this time and this place to rediscover the wondrous gift of free religious community, to renew our faith in the holiness, goodness, and beauty of life, to reaffirm the way of the open mind and full heart, to rekindle the flame of memory and hope, and to reclaim the vision of an earth-made fair with all her people one. Sometimes we come to church and we look around and we think, what are all these people doing? What are we doing here? And at this church, we have an answer in the form of our mission statement, which we put in the bulletin and we read together. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Now is the time in our service where we enter into an attitude of prayer and meditation together where we speak to God or listen to God as we understand God, or where we listen to our inner wisdom or just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. It is in this place, as Emerson called it, the wise silence, where we can find clarity, where we can feel ourselves held in the arms of love, where we can become more deeply rooted in the great compassion. Let us enter into the silence together, understanding that in this congregation, small noises from children and the noises of life count as part of the silence. Thank you. 
So happy Mother's Day to everyone who's a mother, and happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers of books or mothers of businesses or mothers in other way. And I hope we all have some kind of a mother, biological or otherwise, to reach out to for support. My mom died when I was 23, so I found myself, you know, I was raised Presbyterian, but I reached out to a more universal mother one night near Marfa when our GPS took us on Pinto Canyon Road. Road. (laughs) Now, I'm from Philadelphia, so I get nervous when the pavement runs out. I like pavement on my roads. So not only the pavement ran out, but the dirt ran out too, and it was pretty much just rocks and washed out boulders. And we were in a Honda Civic, and it was pitch black dark. And we were going two miles an hour. And I looked out the passenger side window because I'm not driving in there. And it was just, I could tell, nothing. Nothing was out there. It was just a drop-off. When our, when our headlights moved that way, I could see far in the distance a little range of mountains. But in between, there was nothing. And I was like, Kaya, it's a drop-off. Here, she was like, fields, rolling fields, Meg. Just picture rolling fields. <laughs> Took us two hours at two miles an hour. And by the end, I was like... Mother Mary, I know I'm not Catholic, (laughs) and I'm not technically one of your children because I was raised Presbyterian, but there's no Scottish mother I could call to, and please just save us. Please, like, don't let the car break down, and please don't let us fall off this cliff, and please don't let a a boulder break something important on on the underside of the car, and please... Anyway, I was picturing the Virgin of Guadalupe. And when we got to the cabin, there she was on the wall of the cabin. And I just thought, all right. So I, I imagine in my mind that she's kind of adopted me, even though I'm not technically supposed to be culturally one of her children. I, um, I begged to be adopted that night. And so I'm going to talk about one of the universal mothers, kind of, uh, one of the mothers of our faith. Olympia Brown, you've heard a little bit about her already in the in the um, children's time, the story for all ages. And she was a woman who was born in um, 1835, and she was born in Michigan to Universalist pioneers. So, you know, they were hearty folk. Her dad had built a little schoolroom on the farm, so she was educated there and then went to Antioch College and graduated from Antioch. But in the first year in her English class, the professor uh, assigned an oration. And the men were supposed to orate, uh, having memorized their manuscripts. And the women were not supposed to memorize their manuscripts. They were supposed to read from the manuscripts because they felt that memorization taxed the female brain in such a way that too much blood would go to your brain and it would hurt your ability to have children later. Likewise, math. Ow. Thought pain. Bad womb. 
So Olympia Brown didn't argue. She brought her manuscript to the speech, and she delivered the whole oration with it rolled up in her hand like this. And I like to imagine she smacked it on the podium a couple of times. She, um, as Lee said, didn't really like wearing the long skirts. She and some of her more independent-minded uh, female student friends wore the Amelia Bloomer outfit. And that was like bloomers that came down below your knee, but it showed off the lower calf and the ankle, which apparently is a part of the female anatomy that in that time could cause great trouble. They were not allowed to do physical education because, again, too much blood being used for other things than having children. And um, so they took long walks into the town of Yellow Springs for their exercise, and they would cut up and laugh and run around the town, and the townspeople complained to the college. And the college got a chaperone for those young women. She came in, and they were very displeased. And so they teased her unmercifully in German. She lasted a week. She and the other students invited one of the first female preachers named Antoinette Brown, who was ordained by a single congregation. They invited her to come give a, a sermon. And Olympia writes in her autobiography, it was the first time I'd ever heard a woman preach. And the sense of victory lifted me up. I felt as though the kingdom of heaven were at hand. She decided she wanted to become a minister and applied to some seminaries. Well, Meadville Seminary in Pennsylvania at that time sent a response to her application, June 1861. After apologizing for having kept her waiting for a reply, a Mr. Stearns allowed as how were it my private concern, I should say at once, come, I have no prejudice against a woman studying anything she can or against a woman speaking in public. From what I've heard of you, I'd be glad to have you for a pupil and more like you, but I have no right to commit the institution to a new course of action. I heard that a lot as a young seminary graduate, graduated in um, 1981 before many of you were born. And at that time in the Presbyterian Church, there were very, very few women ministers or women in the seminaries at all. So when we got out, they all wanted uh, the women ministers to be the directors of Christian education. But I hadn't had any classes in that. I'd had classes in preaching. And they were all like, no, uh, uh, no, that's what I do. I don't need another person to do that. And plus, whereas I have no prejudice against a woman minister, I just don't think my people are ready. Finally, Olympia received a letter from Ebenezer Fisher, president of the Canton Universalist Divinity School at St. Lawrence University, inviting her to come there and study Greek and live with a private family off campus so that her troublesome femaleness wouldn't be distracting on campus at night. So uh, at the end of the letter, he adds... It is perhaps proper that I should say you may have some prejudices to encounter in the institution from students and also in the community here, nothing very mighty or serious, I trust. 
the faculty will receive and treat you precisely as they would any other student. My own judgment is that it is not expedient for women to be preachers, but I consider that purely a question of experience and not at all of right. The right, I cannot question. The other matter of experience or expedience or duty, I cannot decide for you. I'm, I'm willing to leave it between you and the great head of the church. Not meaning the president of the denomination, he meant God. If you feel God has called you to preach the everlasting gospel, you shall receive from me no hindrance, but rather every aid in my power. That's quite a good letter from a man of that day. And part of this story of how things change is that there have to be allies on the inside. And he opened the door for her from the inside. He was a good ally, even though he personally didn't find it expedient. I heard much the same thing from my fellow Princeton students. They would say, I'm concerned about your feeling of having a call to the ministry. What makes you feel you would be a good minister? And that happened to the women in the uh, seminary over and over. We had to justify ourselves, justify ourselves, justify ourselves. Whereas nobody questioned the men of why they were in seminary. In fact, some of them confessed that they weren't really sure they wanted to be there, but someone in their church had said, you have a really nice voice. You should go to seminary. Here, let me help you fill out the application. <laughs> if you're pushing against the tide, you have to be determined. No woman at that time was ordained by more than one local church, but Olympia Brown wanted to be ordained by the Universalist denomination, and lo, she was. When she was ordained in June 1863, Dr. Fisher, who had had reservations about her coming to St. Lawrence, participated in her ceremony. He participated in the ceremony. That's, that makes him a hero in my book. He, he got over it and grew up. Or whatever. Reverend Olympia Brown later paid tribute to Dr. Fisher, saying this was the first time that the Universalists, or indeed any denomination, had formally ordained any woman as a preacher. They took that stand, a remarkable one for the day, which shows the courage of these men. So here's the way it works. No matter what the social movement, no matter what the change we're trying to make, no matter what the justice we're trying to fight for, here's how it goes. When you don't have any power, you have to push and push and push and push and push and be pushy and be called thoughtless and careless and mean and rude because you're pushing and making people uncomfortable. And they uh, tut-tut at you. Y'all know tut-tutting. <laughs> And they pretty much try to ignore you. And then as you gather a little more power, they start to ridicule you. First ignore, then ridicule. They start uh, tweeting about you and making up nicknames and that kind of thing, uh, trying to just make people f make fun of you. And when that doesn't work, when you become a little more powerful, then they start to fight you. That's how you know you're making progress. When they stop ignoring and ridiculing and they start fighting against you, you're a threat, which is better than being ignored. And then when you prevail, they say, oh, I was with them all the time. 
In fact, it was kind of my idea. <laughs> but you have to have allies. You have to have pushy radicals, and you have to have uh, mild-mannered respectables, tough, determined, but not radical. And you have to have allies on the inside. Those are the three things you have to have because, and, and the radicals and the respectables always fight each other. <sighs> My people. <laughs> if we didn't do this, our world would be a better place. Social justice movements would be longer lived. We wouldn't shoot at each other. But we would recognize that it takes respectables and it takes radicals. And we have to do kind of like a pincher movement on the powers that be. And the respectables have to say, oh, hello, I went to school with your father. You're going to deal with me or you have to deal with that rebel over there. <laughs> That's how women got the vote. And they had help from the inside. Um, in 1864, Olympia Brown was called to her first full-time parish ministry in Weymouth Landing, Massachusetts. She had a lovely time there. The people were lovely. She met her husband. He was on the board of directors. They married. She loved him. He adored her. Um, and she and the people got along very well. It was not so in her next parish in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Her husband, Henry Willis, moved with her to Bridgeport, and she had kept her own maiden name, and he was in support of all of her work for women's rights, and she wrote wonderful things about what a great man he was, and what a support, and what an aid and a help he was to all of her work. But he couldn't protect her from a couple of people at the Bridgeport Church, and we'll name their names. Well, we'll name one of them, Mr. James Staples. He was what they called a bitter agitator in her church, a bitter agitator. And he started right away pecking away at her ministry like a raucous crow, is how he was described. We don't have any of those here that I know of, but a lot of churches do. And the raucous crow, if they get together with two or three other raucous crows, can just flat ruin and split a church apart and make it very painful and unhealthy. When she took a leave of absence for the birth of her first child, Mr. Staples made sure that minister after minister came in to preach who would tell anybody who was listening, uh, what you need here is a good man. Despite the help of some very powerful members and allies, uh, one of whom was named P.T. Barnum, a member of that church, she only lasted six or seven years. She and her husband moved to Racine, Wisconsin, where he started publishing a newspaper and owned his own printing business. She was a pastor of the Good Shepherd Universalist Church in Racine. It was another church like the Bridgeport Church that had had difficulties. It was sinking down. It was broke. It was apathetic. It was low energy. And uh, it started to flourish somewhat under her guidance, and it was a happy time for her family. And all of her, t her children became teachers. Her son, Henry Parker Willis, was professor of banking at Columbia University and key in writing the Federal Reserve Act. Her daughter, Gwendolyn Willis, taught classics at Bryn Mawr. At the age of 52, she wanted to immerse herself 
in the um, work for suffrage. And so she quit the full-time ministry. Um, in Wisconsin, women could vote in matters pertaining to the schools. And that was all. And so Olympia Brown and her group just extrapolated and said, well, you know, really, almost everything has to do with the schools. <laughs> her daughter describes her mother as indomitable and uncompromising traits that do not lend themselves well to politics and leadership. She cared little for society, paid no deference to wealth, represented an unfashionable church, and promoted a cause regarded as certain to be unsuccessful. She was troublesome because she asked people to do things. Work, give money, go to meetings, think and declare themselves openly as favoring a principle instead of saying, oh, well, yeah, I will give that some more consideration. I'll think, think on that and I'll... No longer having the patience for a state-by-state -state campaign for women's suffrage, Olympia Brown joined the radical, because it had split off from the other party, Women's Party. I belonged to this party before I was born, she declared. At the age of 82 in 1917, she was one of a thousand women who marched in freezing rain and strong winds picketing Woodrow Wilson's White House. Many of the marchers chained themselves to the fence in front of the White House when the police came to break up the demonstration. Many of them went to jail and had to be force-fed as they tried to have a hunger strike. In 1920, when she was 85, she marched to demonstrate at the Republican Convention in Chicago. And later that year, women earned the right to vote. Everybody says women were granted the right to vote, but really... When you have to reach out and take it and agitate, it doesn't really feel like granted. It feels like earned. Language is important. She was asked to come back and preach at Good Shepherd Universalist toward the end of her life. And she preached a sermon with the words in it that you all read responsively. After the suffrage victory... She dedicated herself to promoting world peace and joined the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She died in 1926 in Washington, D.C. at the age of 91. I love that so many of you have that fire of spirit in you, that fire for justice. And I love that so many of us are really trying to become better allies and learn how to be allies to uh, the people of color uh, amongst us and in our community. And those of us who are people of color are learning to be allies to other people of color in this congregation and in the community. And the people who identify as straight in this congregation are learning to be allies to the LGBTQ folks. And the people who identify as cisgender, meaning you present and feel your gender that you were assigned at birth, um, are working on how to become allies to the trans folk among us. And we're all just trying so hard to um, be the people who open the door from the inside. And that takes a lot of study because we have to understand if we're being allies that we also are going to be ignored, ridiculed, fought, and then hailed as conquering heroes. I um, look forward to that time. 
And those of you who struggle with whether to be respectable or radical, I just want to say to you, blessings on you and blessings on your path, because we need all of us to make this happen. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Day is a breaking in my soul. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.